Hello, and welcome to episode 52 of Can We Still Be Friends, a podcast that tests the limits of the friendship between two people who mistake movie taste for personal morality. I'm Nate Goss, here with Ryan Ebling. For this episode, we're going back to 1977 to revisit a sci-fi classic, but perhaps not the one you might be thinking of. While Star Wars is, of course, the most massive sci-fi movie to come out in 1977, we've decided to watch Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We've both seen this movie, but as you've come to expect from us, we felt like we needed a rewatch to really know what we feel about it. Even though Close Encounters was the also-ran sci-fi movie of 1977, it still earned a respectable $128 million and received eight Oscar nominations, winning for Best Cinematography. While Close Encounters is often held in high regard by film buffs, over time it hasn't seemed to retain the pop culture traction that Star Wars or many other Spielberg movies have. So does Close Encounters of the Third Kind mean something more than it gets credit for? Or have we all just started noticing something a little strange with Dad? Keep listening. Ronnie, this is very important. I'm not just going to let it lay here. I'm going to call somebody about this. There's nothing... Ronnie, I saw something last night that I can't explain. I saw something last night I can't explain. I'm going out there again tonight, you know. No, you're not. Sam. No, you're not. Sam. They got faces on the moon, so at night they can come through your window. You! Hello? This isn't a moon burn, you know. No, God damn it. You live on the moon. I saw it. You came through my window. That was the increasingly exasperated um, Roy Neary, uh, played by Richard Dreyfus, trying to explain to his even more exasperated wife, Ronnie, played by Terry Gar, um, what is going on with him and why does he keep drawing and sculpting the same mountain Mm -hmm. and he's he's seen some stuff he has some lights some bright lights they burned his face yeah and we've seen some stuff too we've watched Uh close encounters the third kind (laughs) yeah and hopefully you guys watched it either have seen it or watched it with us it's one of those movies that everybody's of course heard of it yeah or maybe has seen images from it but i feel like maybe not everybody has seen it no, I think it's one of those that it's got its its iconic parts. You know, you've got the five note mm-hmm. uh, riff. Yep. Uh, I think people are kind of familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be where it ends, to be honest. I it's don't, probably the, you know, the baseline. Yeah. It's not maybe one. the mountain, maybe Devil's Tower. Yeah, I could see that. Um, but uh, I, it yeah. just it just you know you look at even other Spielberg like Jaws, right? Um, and you know other stuff from the seventies. Obviously, we're talking about how Star Wars came out yeah. the same year, right? Um, heck of a year, heck of a year for John Williams. Yeah, he <laughs> was up know? against himself in the uh, the Oscar. And did he win against himself? He did. He won for Star Wars. Okay, probably the right call. But still, what the? I mean, that is a heck of a, has any yeah. composer seen that kind of success i don't know i have to go back to the you know uh, 17th 18th century and probably figure out what what the climate was like with mozart but uh, yeah i think most music historians would say it mozart and then a gap and then john williams (laughs) right specifically 1977 john williams so was he i mean you 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 looked at you looked this up so was he nominated for 
both close encounters. Was, yeah. And yeah, man, he was. Now and I don't know if that's ever happened since. Oh, I bet it has. I bet it's happened to John Williams since. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. Um, I bet you're right. There's only like four composers working in Hollywood. You've got Hans Zimmer, Hans Zimmer, Danny Elfman, Danny Elfman John Williams, and um, Mark uh, Mothersbaugh. Right. When, M- when many of these being Wes Anderson. 80s new wave. Right. <laughs> Two of the two of the four, and then once in a while we or get we get Trent four. Reznor and Johnny Greenwood, right? Though never together. I I would be interested to hear them. Yeah, you're right. Huh. I wonder how Atticus Ross would take that. Not well, probably not. Now I'm looking at the Oscar nominees from that year because Close Encounters was nominated for eight Oscars, but not Best Picture, mm-hmm. which. I mean, it just kind of strikes me as odd. Usually, a movie racks up that many; they'll they'll toss a best picture their way. Yeah, the the well, nominees. This was back when the nominees were only what four or five? five. Five, five for best picture. But how many of these movies have endured? One, the winner was Annie Hall. Yeah. Two, Star Wars was nominated, of course. Uh huh. The Goodbye Girl. What? <laughs> no, never seen that. Julia. Nope, never seen that. And the Turning Point. No. No, I know. No, no, and no. Right. Like, uh, I couldn't even tell you who's in any of those movies. No. Well, the thing is, Richard Dreyfuss was in The Goodbye Girl wow. and won Best Actor so, for that movie. Julia apparently had a good cast because it was nominated for Jane Fonda, Best Actress. It won for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Jason Robards, Vanessa Redgrave, Best Actress in a Supporting Role. But everywhere else, I mean, poor Close Encounters, aside from cinematography which it won all the other awards that it could have won set design sound probably went to star wars all went to star wars yeah all the technical stuff Mm -hmm. so it looks like the 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 academy wanted to reward its technical achievements and it just so happened to come out the same year as star wars right it's just bad luck yeah but you know it couldn't have been too bad because lucas and spielberg would then go on to work together on raiders so right they were probably able to yeah. bury oh, that hatchet yeah they know? were they were pals from the get-go <laughs> yeah they well were... now that now that you've put us in 1977 i think you actually that did a really Fully. good job of sort of you know getting us thank you well, to absorb that year and that time period a little bit yeah um so so close encounters uh-huh. a couple of reasons we're watching this right number one was 40th anniversary so it's right. been 40 years it seems like yeah, longer than I would have thought, um, but I'm getting older, so right. that makes sense. <sighs> Second would be uh, we we talked in our last episode as we were closing that we haven't ever done a sci-fi movie for this podcast. Not before. this type of sci-fi. I mean, like straight on sci-fi. Right. I mean, I'm right. trying to think of what else would be even close. I mean, possibly if it's contentious, but the the Avengers, whether superheroes, superhero sci-fi okay. or not. Yeah, I wouldn't say that, but yeah, and then. You know, probably the other reason is just we we we've done a Spielberg movie before. We did Hook, but we really that, were focusing that, on our history with yes. it, not not the Steven Spielberg thing. So I don't think we've really dug into Spielberg too heavily, and I think this is a great movie for us to revisit to do that with. I, I do think. too, and uh, on rewatching it, I was I was very pleased with how Spielberg how Spielberg it is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean by that too. So why don't we? Let's talk a little bit about yeah. Close Encounters. Let's okay. talk about Spielberg and yeah. uh, let's get into it. Because I, I, there's a lot to talk about with this one. There's it's a lot a to dig rich, into. It is. Rich, meaty topic. It is. Well, let's talk about... Now, we both said in the intro that we had seen this before, but would you actually have said that you had seen this? Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, you had a good recollection of it before you jumped in this time? Not bad. Yeah. I've seen it 
I wouldn't say it was in the time that was uh, just fine. Haven't seen that. Haven't seen this. Haven't seen this. I'll see it. Ripping um, through, it was, filling uh, the gaps. Yeah, it was actually during one of my, uh, and this was not appropriate apparently, uh, it was one of my summer blockbuster binges where hmm. I think we both do this in the summer. We we watch big movies. Big movies. Yeah, yeah things that we've seen and things we haven't seen. We yeah. re, I, I, I at least rewatch some blockbusters and um but uh Close Encounters was not a summer blockbuster it was actually a winter release um so right, but I, think I was wrong in that but it's got that feel it does have that feel and um, i think that um i was watching a not to sidetrack too much but i was watching a special feature on the with an interview of Spielberg and and he wanted it to be a summer release mm-hmm. and it just didn't work out that yeah way. he felt like they really rushed it yeah so my memory of it is not lost in the sea of other movies that i've seen um so you've seen it within the last few years then you know, you would have been at least an adult. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I was married. So in the last seven years, and that was your first time seeing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked it. Yeah, I mean, it's got that very Spielberg feel. It's mm-hmm. got. I mean, at that time, you uh, would have given it. What would your letterboxed rating? Four have been? actually yeah. is what uh, what I what I rated it. Okay. Um, so for you, it is one of the ones that was lost in the sea, or Absolutely is it one lost. that you watched as a kid? I watched it as a kid. I think I actually watched it. Um, Maybe two or three times as a kid, but in, it's not exactly a kid movie. No, I know, and I watched it in patches. My parents liked it, and so they would watch it once in a while. And I never watched it with them, I don't think, but I think I just was able to pop it on. And um, but I think I was probably like ten years old or something. And um, I briefly mentioned this in the last episode. It it freaked me out, which is kind of weird because I actually saw a lot of movies I shouldn't I can, have watched at yeah, that time, and they didn't phase me. But that one really freaked me out and um, I never revisited it again. I don't think it was because it scared me, but um, it just never happened. I mean, this makes more sense as a kid. I was much more into like E.T. And then Close Encounters just seemed like that other alien Spielberg movie. Yeah. <laughs> the weird one that kind of freaked me out a little bit. Yeah. And then I always meant to watch it again over the years and it just never happened. And I remember I wanted to watch it again really bad when they had that like I love the 70s show on VH1. Yeah. And they were talking about Close Encounters. And I was like, man, you know, I should really watch that again sometime. And then it's, again, never happened. So hmm. on Letterboxd, I'd never actually, it was one of those that I never felt comfortable even rating. Because sure. I was never quite sure if I had really seen the whole thing. So I technically had seen it, but I, I don't even have a, a rating for it at all on Letterboxd. Oh. All right. So I guess we can just move into uh, how we feel initially. Right. On the rewatch, uh, baseline star rating on Letterboxd. You've just watched this movie. I've just watched this movie. Hopefully our listeners have just watched this movie. So right. what, what are we thinking? What's what, what's your feeling on Close Encounters? I would keep it a four. Yeah. I liked some things, I think, more than I did. And other things I was sort of like, I can see why this movie didn't catch on. Yeah. I, yeah. Certainly, I mean, it's not it's not Star Wars. It's not supposed to be Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying compared to Star Wars. I can see why, say, like, E.T. caught on more. I can see why not everybody loves it. Right. And this one's a lot more chock full of, I think, ideas than yeah. something like E.T., which is a lot more... Um, not that this mm-hmm. doesn't have good characters and doesn't have something that's more character-driven, but this is certainly something that's more about... Spielberg's trying to get some ideas out. Yeah. And uh, I'm I'm also going to do four stars that feels good to me so i think we're all right kind of on the same page here well, but i, I really listening did... <laughs> we will catch what are we you gonna next talk about time? next time <laughs> <laughs> but 
but yeah, I, I, um, I agree with you. I, I can see, I can certainly see why Star Wars was more of a phenomenon than, uh, no, than yeah. Close Encounters. Um, but I, I really like this movie a lot, yeah. and, and I, I and I really like the Spielberg aspects of this movie. Yeah. Well, let's start where Spielberg starts at the beginning, um, and talk about some classic Spielberg things. Yes. Yeah. Uh, for one. That beginning, that classic Spielberg cold open. Yep. Where you've got desert. like, yeah. I mean, it reminded me of. Well, it was, not, it was, it was the desert, I but mean, it was Mexico, right? Right. Yeah. And that opening scene just sets the tone so perfectly for yep. what you're going to see, even though it's very, very loosely related. Mm-hmm. He says the sun came out last night. He says it sang to him. Il dit que le soleil était venu ici hier soir et qu'il chantait pour lui. It starts big. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to the actual story, it goes from immediately very big to extremely small. Yep. And Somebody that's in their house thing. or yes. whatever. Yeah. So we're talking three different languages, right? Because you got mm-hmm. English, Spanish, and French yeah. uh, all coming around, coming around and trying to figure out there's something that's happened in this desert. There's a mystery aspect to it, which is very Spielberg. Yep. Like you, if you think of the cold open to Jurassic Park, for instance, and, and yes. when they're bringing the raptor in and mm-hmm. you don't ever see the raptor. And right. You've got that high-pitched... Um, Williams eerie thing yeah. going on, the yep, yep. you know, yeah. like, <laughs> um, yeah. it, it, the, the score and everything. And you've got a, a, a group of characters, only one of which you really need to remember villains, not the right word, but they're more like just the, the, they are very Spielberg, the, yeah. the, the people who, the unfeeling sort of like scientific view of it mm-hmm. versus the people who are trying to feel something out. Yeah. Um it would be interesting to me to 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 watch all those cold opens and time them and see if the beats are anywhere near yeah. each other cuz they feel but it you, feels like they would. And but, they are so mem- I mean Jaws is that woman in the beach yeah, or in the, 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 the party woman, the woman and then in the, the beach yeah, yeah and then you the know, woman swimming alone. Uh you've got um Raiders of the Lost Ark you've got the mm-hmm. iconic you know going into the, the temple the and, chase, and yeah. the the big stone and right. everything. The Jurassic Park one, definitely. Well, it's exposition by question almost. Like yeah. he guides you to asking the right questions mm. so that he doesn't give you the information. He shows you enough to make you wonder, well, what are they talking about? What was the light? What was all this stuff? And, uh, you know, in Jurassic Park, what's in there? What's what's so bad about raptors? Why do they, you know... Uh, like all these things. And so instead of just laying things out, he forces you to ask these questions. He raises these questions and they're not deeper. It's not even, it's not. There are these very broad questions that you're asking in your mind, like what is going on? What is this? And because they're not so like, you know, obviously they're not answered. They're just, they're just supposed to kind of open you up. They really open you up into this movie so that by the time you get to the small stuff, you are ready to just fully embrace what's going to happen in this movie. I think. Yeah. It, it's it makes the movies so satisfying mm-hmm. because you be, you begin with all these questions and then they get answered, 
Well, and also because of that juxtaposition of going big and then going small, he's able to very quickly create a complete world. Mm-hmm. He can take you from the macro to well, the micro, and, and it all makes just, sense. Not just a know? complete world, but he takes you from this place that's so unfamiliar. And I, I will say this as white suburbanites to he he starts in this completely foreign often literally Exotic foreign kind of place um place this place full of questions and then brings you to your living room mm-hmm. and you're like okay if this is where we're starting i'm fine yeah i can, I can build out from here so yeah the just the the way he can get you into a movie and immediately kind of grab you it's it's pretty impressive I don't know where this belongs in the conversation, but I think it's interesting. He's got such a sci-fi title, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Like, that's a sci-fi pulp novel title. He had to fight for that. Close Encounters, he wrote. You're right. This is definitely a Spielberg through and through movie. So actually, I think yeah. it is a really good one for us to talk about Spielberg definitely. because you are getting Spielberg entirely in definitely. this one. Yeah. The hardest fight he had with the studio um, was actually being able to call it what he wanted to call it. Mm-hmm. And that, that Close Encounters of the Third Kind comes from J. Allen Hynek, who was hired by the government, who was supposed to investigate people who had reported UFOs, unidentified flying objects. Mm. His job was to try to discount all of them. And he discounted about 90% of them. But then he said there was about 10% that just did not seem... Like he couldn't really disprove them and the people seemed too sane and they seemed to kind of like what uh, the the Roy character says where he's just like, I didn't want to see this. Yeah. Um, it was kind of like that. And so he ended up actually leaving that government job and then trying to kind of seek out that 10% and answer that. And he ended up writing a book and in the book he talks about different encounters. And the third kind was when you actually meet them, mm. meet the actual aliens. And so, yeah, it's a very sci-fi title. It's coming from actual, you know, science, science. research. Yeah. And and Spielberg wanted that title, um, and the studios obviously was like, it doesn't mean anything, and you don't even talk about it. Right. They don't explain so, it. Yeah. You know, so why would you want to do that? But he fought for it, and I think it's a it's a good thing to fight for. Yeah. Because honestly, I think it adds to that mystery we were talking about. Mm-hmm. You know. It, it it feels like Spielberg was on a real genre kick <laughs> because like. Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is so influenced in that title, too. It's just very, like... Genre. Yeah, yeah. that that adventure kind of novel sort of thing. And um, he accomplishes something that I think only people who genuinely love, even if they couldn't necessarily articulate why they love it, but genuinely love a genre can do with a genre picture. Instead of just following the tropes and following the beats, is able to make something new and kind of in, infuse others with that love. Um, I've, I think like Edgar Wright is somebody else who's really good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not parodying the genres that his movies are supposedly parodying. He's making another one on standing on the shoulders of the things he loves about it. And um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I love that it's so unapologetically sci-fi. Yeah. In a way that actually Star Wars wasn't. Oh yeah. Star Wars was almost like, more apologetically sci-fi mm-hmm. like it was more like this is sci-fi but even if you don't like sci-fi you're, you're you'll yeah. be okay with it because it's not really sci-fi it's just sort of set in space well i know a lot of librarians and science fiction aficionados will tell you that it's not sci-fi star wars is not yeah. sci-fi it's fantasy right or it's and i think know, that's a accurate. space samurai movie or whatever yeah 
I mean, Close Encounters is much closer to say 2001, right? Than Star Wars is, right? It's much much closer to even something more recent like Ex Machina or mm-hmm. something like that than than right than Star Wars is. You yeah, know? definitely. So, I mean, I guess what do we mean when we say that? Are we? I think it is that it's kind of tackling big ideas, mm-hmm. and so I think real sci-fi can have this surface level feeling that it's a little colder, right? Trying to tackle. Um, certain topics and ideas maybe at the expense sometimes of character and story. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's really the case here in close encounters. No, I don't um, either. And I think that's, that is something else that's uniquely Spielberg is the lived in quality of his movies, sci-fi, which can be so cold. Like you said, I mean, Roy Neary's house is nowhere near cold. Oh, you know, can we talk about that for just a sec? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Specifically talking about Roy Neary and his household. Mm hmm. It's such a it's such a sort of humble setting that you wouldn't think too much about set design. But my gosh, the, the set design is so particular and accurate yep. with those houses. And so there's just the setting itself. They're cluttered, first of all. Like yep. how how often do you see movies that are depicting families where they're in this like spick and span household? And I just found it super comforting. I'm like <laughs> I'm like, hey, that house looks like yeah. my house. <laughs> it there's, is there's crap all over it the is place. A mess. You know? yes. Yeah. And it's the sort of house that you wouldn't necessarily be surprised that he started throwing shovelfuls of dirt into the living yeah. room. Yeah. Um which uh, for the setting um, one of our listeners, Eric, uh, who often writes into the show, but he had a lot of thoughts on Close Encounters, and I think we're going to bring him up a couple times in this episode because yeah. he talks about a lot. But one of the things he really does mention is the the look of the houses. Mm-hmm. Eric says, those families have so much stuff. Dedicated consumers, they must be the houses are <laughs> packed with stuff stacked on the wall everywhere. There's a lot of equipment featured in this movie, toys, jukeboxes, cameras, consoles in the air traffic control room. In the mobile lab, that's a separate setting. But mm-hmm. but then he even goes on to say, like, he mentions toys that, like, he remembers having. Yeah. And that's a very Spielberg thing, too, is just, like, you know, it's going to be the stuff that you remember growing up with or right. if you were growing up at the time, the stuff that was in your bedroom. Very you know? familiar, yeah. Very familiar. I think that's part of why he's got so many corporations and branding, like, the connectivity, the, the mm-hmm. shorthand. Like, this is not some other world where aliens have visited. This is your world. Right. This is the world of shell oil. and The world where we stations. attract those this aliens is... with Reese's Pieces and E.T. Right, you know, exactly. And... But going back to the, the, the homes and the, and, the, and the family scenes in general, the actual dialogue whenever they're in the house is so chaotic. Oh, my gosh. And it's accurate. That's the thing. Like, it is chaotic. It is stressful to listen to, but it is so accurate. There is not a moment those parents are talking where there's not a kid banging on something, a piano being banged on, the kids trying to yell and get their attention while they're trying to talk to each other. The TV. Yeah, the TV's on. Maybe it's just my life, but it seemed very true to life to me. Honey? Can you also promise Goofy Golf? Oh, yeah. table i thought i told you this was for my stuff this table i mean you can have that table oh i don't want this stuff on my breakfast table this can cause tetanus what is this hey you know who's playing in town pinocchio i don't want it on my kids have never seen pinocchio you guys have never seen pinocchio Pinocchio tomorrow night. 
Roy, that is a wonderful way to win over your children. Well, and then Eric, too, in his email made, it was sort of a passing comment, but it's a good question. He remembers as a child, he didn't like the chaos. Um, but he said he wondered maybe that's a theme, the struggle to communicate and the need for intermediaries to facilitate and translate. Hmm. He goes on to say, or maybe not. But I, I think there's something to it because that really is all that the aliens are seeking to do in this movie is communicate. And it just so happens that their contact with Roy and the other humans who who encounter them, um, it throws a wrench into their communi- ability to communicate with other humans. But they still, they all have that, I don't know what this is, but I know it's important. I can't stop thinking about this. It's it's an it's not an uncommon feeling for humans mm-hmm. to say there's something I want to say there's something I can't let go I don't know how to say it I don't know what it means I don't know why it's important but this is just something that's well, a part of me it's it's yearning sure and you know Josh Larson who's the co-host of Film Spotting right just recently wrote a book called Movies or Prayers and each chapter goes through different types of prayer and he has a chapter on prayers of yearning. And in there is a section on Close Encounters because he talks about this obsession um, that Roy has, which is kind of indicative of humanity as a whole, of what exactly you're just talking about. Yeah. Um, and I remember I had actually read his section on Close Encounters before I rewatched the movie. And as I was reading his part, I was like, you know, is he reading too much spirituality into this? Because I really did not remember that being a part of Close Encounters from my 10-year-old viewing. Yeah. But I was really struck by how religious this movie feels. Hmm. Um, uh, this movie seems to almost entirely be a narrative of religious experience, but wrapped up in a sci-fi narrative. And that's not really coming from Josh. He's not quite going there. I'm going there. I'm the one who's going there. Yeah. But all Josh really says are, is that it, it is a conversion experience that he has, um, but he's not quite sure yet uh, what it is he's supposed to believe. Hmm. Um, and then Josh says, and so he goes on a yearning journey. Roy is nothing if not an impassioned seeker, akin to the psalmist whose soul yearns even faints for the courts of the Lord. He says, quote, there is comedy but also tragedy here as Roy's obsession becomes so all-encompassing that he's eventually willing to leave his young family behind in pursuit of what he does not yet fully understand. But I think that's what Spielberg's playing with a little yeah. bit is like what you're talking about, this feeling that we all have in us. There's something out there. I don't know what it is, but I got to figure it out. And that yeah. you're willing to almost do anything um, to get there. You know, it could be anything. It could be, it could be religious. It could be just ambition. It could yeah. be talent. It could be, there are a lot of things that I think it could speak to. Josh mentioned the comedy and the tragedy. Um, this may not be the time to get into this, but it is, I will say that there, like you said, there are a lot of ideas in this movie. I think that the movie can feel very uneven at times because of that. So we should say also, we watched the director's cut. Yeah. There's the original theatrical, there's a special edition of the, the director's cut. Um, and there's a scene that Roy is in the middle of the night, just in the shower. And uh, his wife kind of wakes up and sees him in there and says, we can get some help. And then his kids see. And it's this, that's something that's, that struck me this time especially, was that the, the progression of his kids' sort of disillusionment mm-hmm. with their father. Yeah, It starts with the older one 
It's a little. Who, it's it's pretty heartbreaking. It actually, is. It's tremendously heartbreaking to see the older one, and then the the the, the young, the second, their their middle child kind of starts seeing it too, and just seeing the fallibility and the humanity of your parents can mm-hmm. be a very troubling thing. And it's so clear to these boys, and to watch it happen because the movie unfolds it very subtly mm-hmm. but very effectively. But in that scene where his wife you know wakes up and sees him in the shower she says initially that she wants to help him but then she just gets angry at him and like is done with him a sad scene and then the next morning is the scene where he goes around pulling up plants and throwing dirt into the kitchen and like all this stuff and it's almost like slapstick comedy it's it's tough sometimes to know who we're supposed to be sympathizing with because in the scene where he's in the shower we're definitely sympathizing with him and she is understandably at her wits end but reacting in a way that we can all see is wrong Mm -hmm. and then the next morning it's this just like zany sort of he is acting crazy why would she stay like it's just you know and then it all sort of builds up to the the questionably triumphant moment of him going on the spaceship right because it's like he's leaving his family he's abandoning his family are we supposed to be okay with that because we they broke up like are we supposed to believe that she left him and it's over because he's still leaving his children right yeah it's a very hard thing but i think that actually goes back to what i was saying about how surprised i was by how much this seemed to be a meditation almost on religious experience because you have this thing it's almost like a road to damascus moment you Mm -hmm. know like this bright light that just basically blinds him Mm -hmm. and he can't describe what happened right but he can't give it up right and how far are you supposed to go to figure out what that is does that should that become the all-consuming thing that your life becomes the part of because i i think especially um with the values we have on family that becomes a very tricky question when you're talking about someone abandoning their family right. to go on a spaceship, you know. Right. But one of the things that, you know, Josh Larson does talk about in this section on Close Encounters, um, you can read Close Encounters Climax, a bravura, a bravura, bravura. Yeah, I've never known how to say that word. <laughs> bravura uh, light show in which Roy climbs that mountain and reconnects with the aliens in an ecstatic matter in a variety of ways. It is, to be sure, a moment of familial abandonment. And Spielberg's parents' divorce when he was a teenager and broken families are a common theme in his films. Mm. Yet it is also one of religious devotion, perhaps something like James and John leaving their father behind to follow Jesus. Mm. Um, It kind of makes you think about this being a thing in religious traditions of like, once you have that experience, that's all that matters, you know? Mm. Um, And then it's almost like Spielberg's kind of, in a way, testing that, like, this is a transcendent moment. This is something that no one's ever seen. This is like a a really beautiful thing, once in a lifetime thing that you have to make a decision if you're going to be a part of it or not. 
but is it worth abandoning your family for? I don't know. And the other thing is I don't think Spielberg really does give any weight to that second half of that question. Yeah. You don't ever actually see the family again once, and you don't even get a sense that he's given them a single thought since he's made that decision to leave. Right. And yeah, no, yeah, I, I think, I think you're right. Um, but you also know, I mean, because he has a little fling on the mountain, a kiss with Melinda Dillon's character and he still leaves her, meaning that he wasn't just looking for sure. an escape out of family life and finding it in another well, woman or anything. It has to be this one thing. Right. You know? Because the kiss never felt romantic. It felt like. Uh, like an exaltation, like, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a connection. Yeah. And by the way, you know, Spielberg was a believer at this time. Like, oh, I don't really? mean, I mean, he was a believer in UFOs. Oh, okay. And a strong believer, actually. Interesting. And, and then he's since changed his mind about that. Oh. Yeah, it's it's a very earnest movie. I. It's also interesting. So we talked about how in the cold open, Spielberg can get us to ask questions. It feels like in this movie, the mystery is the mystery. Like, what is the mystery is the mystery that's being solved. Does that make sense? Like, Roy's <laughs> looking for answers, but he's also looking for questions hmm. because he doesn't even know what to ask to get the answer. Hmm. So it's not exactly a movie where our questions are going to be satisfied because we don't even know what we're asking. Well, what did, what did you make of the moment when the Truffaut character, Cloud Lacombe, straight up asks him, what do you want? And Roy says, I just want to know that it's really happening. Mm. And I, I think yeah. that that's supposed to be very important, but I'm trying to figure out what that means for the movie. <laughs> like, um, is he just trying to get some sort of uh, vindication that what yeah. he saw was real? Well, I, I, because he's, because he's mean, questioning what he's seeing. Yeah. Even. I took that um, to mean that he feels crazy, but he's not crazy if it's real. So just, you know, Tell me that I'm not crazy, that I have had this encounter. I feel so different for a reason, almost, Mm -hmm. you know? I found strangely, like, similar types of statements or just general feelings about where our country's at right now. Like, we're starting to question our own realities, even, you know? Everything I thought kind of made sense around me. doesn't really make sense anymore. And how can people have such a different idea of reality than me? Right. You know? Yeah. Not in these exact words, but there's a part of me that's like, I just want to know that the world that I see around me is the real world, you know? Mm-hmm. And I thought it was weird to kind of hear that echoed in Close Encounters. I'm not, you know? Yeah. That I'm not misconstruing things. Yeah. That I'm not so out of it or whatever to miss what's actually happening. I don't know. Maybe this movie is that prescient. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. So Spielberg, he started from the end and worked his way back when he wrote this movie. Hmm. He kind of had an idea of he just wanted to shoot. How do we get someone on a spaceship? He knew that he just wanted to shoot contact. He wanted to shoot aliens coming down on the ship and communicating with people. And he wanted to do it as an opera, basically. That's all he knew. And then he worked backwards and and he had to kind of figure out how to work backwards and then watergate happened and he said that's it it's going to be a government conspiracy you know huh. and you've seen that theme through a lot of spielberg you don't trust the government no. in spielberg movies they, in they e. want to take e. away. yeah you know 
especially that 70s, 80s Spielberg. Definitely, it's a, yeah. kind of an anti-government kind of thing, or, or at least uh, you can't trust the government. They don't have your best interest in mind. Right. You know? They don't get it. <laughs> and so that does make me think of Close Encounters within that sort of, you know, what is it saying about not only reality and truth, but what the government does to shape your reality and mm-hmm. your truth and try to keep it from you in certain ways. Right, know? especially since we see a lot more of the thought process of the government in this movie. We, like, actually see them brainstorming the cover-up. I still like the flash flood idea. Where are you going to get the water? You've got about two inches of rain in the last 16 months. We can do a survey of dams and reservoirs in the areas and tell them the one's going to burst. Besides that, there's not enough water in those reservoirs for contaminated contaminated water. Fix people, crop, disease. Yeah, epidemic. The what plague kind epidemic. Of disease? What kind of disease? Plague. The plague epidemic. Nobody's going to believe a plague in this day and age. Anthrax. Ranching country. Yes. There are a lot of sheep up on those hills. Wait a minute. That's good. That's good. I like that. But it may not evacuate everybody. There's always some joker who thinks he's immune. What I need is something so scary it'll clear 300 square miles of every living Christian soul. It was a fear tactic. Put on your gas mask because you saw the cows mm-hmm. in the road. There's something going on, and it was nothing. Yeah. Right, right. But what it, what you were seeing was done by the government. Right. It goes in some surprising directions, I think. You've got that B story. We've got these converging stories. You've seen it from the beginning, which isn't so bad. Like Truffaut, like you said, we were fighting. We were, we were searching for the word. They're not bad guys. He's not a bad guy, actually. Um, I mean, not really. No. He just wants to, he knows something's happening and he wants to figure out how to right. communicate, you know? And the government doesn't necessarily want to like fight, the, obviously, because they set up the whole musical c- communication system. The, there wasn't a weapon present. Um, so it's not that the government is sinister, but they do want to be a little bit more scientific and procedural about the whole thing. And so this movie lets us in on that as well as the person who doesn't know. Because nobody knows. The government doesn't know, but they're taking this approach towards it. This sort of like, let's clear people out and let's go through these sort of proper channels to Mm -hmm. try to communicate. But then you've also got the people who couldn't be controlled, their contact couldn't be controlled, and they're just trying to figure it out. So they're creating this art that's like expressing what they're fixating on. And and, and that's just something that... um, it's just so thoughtful about the different aspects of how would people react to this? Almost idealistic that the government wouldn't set up weapons and that these people would be creating art rather than like, oh, these people went insane and lost their families and the government prepared for war. Like it's a little bit idealistic and very, very nice, which is part of what makes the movie so comforting because this movie's got this very strange uh, tension between unsettling but never never ominous no and i think and i was kind of surprised by this i think the movie generally thinks the best of humanity Mm -hmm. it's i think it's a very affirming view of humanity down to the fact that like when they put them in the helicopter to like ship them out they didn't lock the doors or anything (laughs) like the government was like you guys will stay put (laughs) um yeah there's that and and also affirming not only of humanity, but affirming of science in a way, because it's good for humans to seek out the truth. 
because even as the aliens yeah. come down and there's moments where you you could be very afraid and some are some run away some fall down to their knees again a very religious yeah. top of the mountain mount sinai kind of experience but they work their hardest to try to figure out how to communicate with these, and they don't give up either. And they actually seek it out. I mean, that's the other difference too, is they read the codes. They try to figure out where exactly is this going to be. They grab the globe and they figure it out and they immediately go there and they build this humongous thing mm -hmm. to try to communicate with what's going on. super elaborate, you know? yeah. They're doing just as much work to communicate as the aliens are doing with them. It's mm -hmm. a very, it's a very, <laughs> it's diplomacy in action. It is, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, yeah. I wonder if uh, Daft Punk likes this movie. Oh, they'd have to. <laughs> with with the, the lights and the with lights the, the and mountain the, and the and yeah the, yeah and the, and the music and yeah. the synths. My my, this is a movie for Daft this Punk. This is Daft Punk's <laughs> movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've both seen Arrival. I feel like this movie's heir apparent is Arrival. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's a good point. And. My brother-in-law asked me, like, would it be too scary to show to some somebody who's mm. like, you know, doesn't like scary movies? And the question kind of perplexed me because I'm like, well, no, it's not scary. It, but it is disquieting. Well, it's it's, it's uncertain. It's I, uncertain yeah. more than anything. They're both uncertain. They're both disquieting. But they're never scary or ominous. You know, Richard Dreyfuss's encounter. It's disquieting. Like to watch what's happening to the to the you know, the street signs and everything, you don't like it. And by the way, technically, that's just such an awesome scene. The mailboxes and the not that just part mail, that... but I, I was thinking what really stuck out to me was what happens to the object the in the car. car. Yeah, yes. Because yeah. we're never outside the car in that moment. But and everything start starts like floating, floating and yeah. like you feel like he must be facing up, like whatever. Who knows? I don't know what it's, happened it's exactly to his truck, yeah. but it was such a brilliant way to shoot that scene. Um, and it's a microcosm of the movie because the people who are plagued, which is uh, probably too strong of a word, by the visions after seeing the, the aliens, they're never afraid of what they're seeing. Well... I'm okay. I'm going to disagree and push back a little oh, bit on you, okay. just a little bit here, and this goes with Arrival as well. I oh. do think that there is legitimate fear and panic in the moment of the unknown when it's unknown. Sure. Um, and I think that it, that the movies, though, both of them, Arrival and Close Encounters, are not saying that that's a bad thing, but they're saying that you have to move past it. Mm. Because if you and I'm going to I'm going to go back to my ten year old self. I was right to be completely afraid of Barry's abduction. Barry's abduction oh, yeah. still kind of freaked me out when I yeah. watched it. Yeah, yeah. It really did. I'm not showing this to my kid. I, it, and it, I mean, as a 34-year-old adult, when he opens that door and it's that orange light just basking in and there's the red light coming in through the keyhole. Well, what amazing visual! Oh my God, it's amazing. Like it the, is so the well red done. light on the blinds. Yeah, and like... so effective. And you're not seeing anything. It's just light in a room. Mm -hmm. And the wind. What I think is very, very stark... Uh, contrast is the reaction of Barry versus the reaction of his mother. Mm -hmm. And that I think is really the point of the movie that if it, humanity needs a childlike curiosity and Barry is never afraid, but his mother is terrified the entire time as she should be. Yes, it is unknown. And that's by definition going to be scary. You know, we fear what we don't know, but yeah. that in both these movies, they are in, in stark contrast to a lot of, horror and suspense it's saying with science and with inquiry mm -hmm. 
we usually find out that it's not worth being afraid about. Yeah. You know, and I think that that is a very unique message to those movies um, because there is also sci-fi that says the complete opposite. Right. (laughs) Sci-fi that says, you know, the more that we know, we don't know how to handle that knowledge and we do terrible things with it. Right. You know, but this is a very different message. It's a very positive message. But I will say where I want to kind of push back a little bit is that those moments of the unknown you do see fear and you feel fear as a viewer, I think. I, were you not scared at all during, uh, or at least a little tense during Barry's well, abduction? Like, oh, I think it's shot in a way where you're supposed to be a little tense. I mean, you've got the. No, definitely. Oh, that's the thing. I, I didn't use words and it wasn't pointed. I wasn't like trying. In my notes, I've got words like disquieting, intense, like, mm-hmm. but I think because, like you said, Barry's not afraid. And so many people are just curious about it. It feels reassuring to us as viewers. Like, this is and could be scary, but don't worry. Mm -hmm. Even up until the very end, though, we don't get any answer that allays our fears. We don't know what happened to the people who had been abducted. We don't Mm -hmm. know what they went through. We don't know what time was like for them. There are, like, all these questions that are raised. So we're not, like... It's not like, oh, good, having the answers made us unafraid. No, you're right. It was almost like communication made us unafraid. Yeah. In Arrival, we there's a translation, and mm-hmm. they get the message. In this, the, it's just, we did communicate. They The alien makes the hand signals back. And awesome. We have no idea what they said, and we don't know what we, we were saying. Right. It's just like engaging is all you need. If you think about... Spielberg's choice of how they communicate right light and music that ties together this uh macro micro thing we were talking about with the opening scenes because you do get this universality to communication especially when they go to is it India I think right and you've got the 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 groups of people chanting the five note melody you know and they all point to the sky as to where they got Just this idea that, like, you know, if we can, if we can kind of look beyond ourselves, there's a universality to things. That even amongst our differences, things like music, uh, things like a light show, yeah, <laughs> can have these very bonding types of effects. There's a lot we could look into with this movie. I part of me thinks that the movie intentionally leaves a lot. To be questioned oh yeah for that very reason yeah. you know that, that that's kind of good sci-fi it makes you meditate on a lot of different things um, right as we have so far in this episode kind of in a very wandering kind of way mm-hmm. um i kind of wanted to bring it into go bring the conversation back to some of the more spielberg type things yeah and one of the things i i noticed was you know when stranger things came out yeah everyone talked about that being so spielberg feeling Mm-hmm. And I remember when I heard that, I agreed, but I was definitely picturing like E.T., yeah. maybe Goonies, because Spielberg wrote Goonies, um, I think. a story credit, yeah. Yeah, but there's a lot of close encounters in Stranger Things mm-hmm. with especially the way that the Winona Ryder mother character acts Sure, in that sort of frantic frantic it's that manic but obsessed kind of way yeah i am right i don't care what you think you know 
and I'm going to do this. Yeah. You know? Well, I think there's a reason that there's so much Close Encounters in Stranger Things when people just call it Spielberg because there's so much Close Encounters in all of Spielberg. I feel like the things we see in Close Encounters were things that really became templates for Spielberg, for future yeah. Spielberg. Not the least of which being the fact that Steven Spielberg thinks that people can sleep in any and every position. Like the kid's legs hanging all the way off the top bunk of the bed. And like... That 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 might have some truth to it. I see my boys in some very odd positions. I just think it's really funny because it's true in... And again, I know he didn't direct it, but Back to the Future, there's... um. Marty like sleeping in like just this really strange position with one arm <laughs> under him, one arm behind him. You know he told Zemeckis to shoot yeah. him away. Like I've got one request. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's uh the family relationships, just the pacing, the the way he unfolds that like again, it's not like I mean, this isn't, you know, the first person to ever do two storylines. But storylines that are so different with the government. And the characters that we know. That's what Stranger Things is. That's its bread and butter. It's like... This these, this group of kids in this small town and, and the, the conspiracy, the whole, yeah. you know, government side of things. Right. Exactly. But, uh, and then the the domestic, the, 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 the pretty gritty view of domestic life mm-hmm. um, is something that Spielberg has maintained in, in a lot of his movies. I, I was just about to ask the question, why do we both say four stars? Not four and a half, not five, you know? Yeah. Why not anything bigger? I think there are two reasons that I could pinpoint, and they're fairly disparate. Like, they don't seem to go together. One is that the movie is sort of uneven. Um, there were so many ideas and so many things going on that he threw them all up there, and most of them worked. Mm-hmm. And it's enough of them worked that we can ignore the ones that didn't. And at the same time, there's not a, a lot going on in the movie. Right. It can feel kind of slow. That may be why it didn't click either. It's not 2001, but it's not Star Wars. And it's it's definitely got moments, times where the movie is just sort of sitting. I think a lot of times it's to its credit. There are other times where it's sort of, like I said, the mystery is the mystery. It didn't yeah. quite know what it was trying to figure yeah. out. Yeah, I mean, if you ask why this isn't like a, a five-star movie for me, it's it's kind of hard to pinpoint that. I think that we could tease out things, you know? Um, like, I don't feel like it really fleshed out the abduction aspect of it. Like, those, right. those uh, well, I don't even, were they sailors? Or were they the people who came off pilots. at the pilots? There the people, were pilots and sailors. And yeah. they hadn't aged. And of course, they don't really explain much about that. But I mean, I think that's part of the, the point is it's supposed to be a mysterious kind of thing. But like, it also seemed kind of wedged in there. Right. Um, so yeah, there is that sort of unevenness like, to it. Yeah, um, we, we it, it was a really effective way to open the movie and create the mystery. And then they had to close that at the end. But don't look too much that, into it. That's kind of a whole movie in itself. You know, yeah. th- that's the thing is yeah. that there is also an aspect of this where there's so many ideas that you're kind of like, boy, you know. In one, on one hand, it's impressive that you pulled off a movie that holds together as well as it does, but it was almost destined to never hold together all that perfectly. <laughs> but ultimately, I think for me, does this feel like a five-star movie? Well, it's a really, really good movie. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have that really place in stuff. me. It didn't quite connect on that 
special level where you're kind of like this is sort of you know a core movie i guess like uh it's not i don't know how often i would feel like i need to go back to this movie i don't know how often i would feel like this movie defines me or my thinking you know in a lot of ways other movies have yeah um it's just a really good movie yeah Uh, and it does make you think by equation (laughs) it should have everything that would make it a five-star movie for me but there's just something missing yeah yeah i I, i'm i'm with you we seem to be almost identically on on the same page here yeah i think so because i mean we don't have a lot of bad things to say about this movie really no No. we both really enjoyed watching it yeah I, i would recommend this movie yeah i think it's an important movie where where would you put this in your ranking of spielberg Oh, uh, of the 56 credits on IMDb, <laughs> where would I put this, huh? I just it's mean, I, I, I mean, curious, I would like, probably put it top five. I think so too for me. So I think we really are on kind of the same page. In, in some ways, it's like top five with a bullet because he's directed some real shit. But <laughs> right. um, at the same time, it would have to be contingent on what I'm ranking them based on. You know, like Nostalgia Hook would be up there. Jurassic Park would be up there. Right. But as far as like great movies, would would they make the cut? Because you've got Raiders of the Lost Ark. You've mm. got... Mm-mm. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. You've got Schindler's List. You've mm-hmm. got Saving Private Ryan. I, I think Catch Me If You Can is an amazing movie. I think as time goes on, Lincoln will be appreciated more. I yeah. I thought Lincoln was an I amazing film. I probably need film. to see that again. I, I haven't seen Amistad. Yeah, man. Boy, this is a hard, it's a harder question than I thought. Minority Report's good. So it's tough, tough to say. I think sometimes we overlook Spielberg. Absolutely. You know, like he doesn't I get like the credit. I feel like it was like a 10-year span where he was just kind of... Spielberg, you know, yeah, like the next one, right? But no matter what, the guy knows how to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Being palatable is not, shouldn't be, uh, a mark against somebody mm-hmm. because he still knows how to break ground or be artistic and be palatable. And I feel like in the last fifteen years, ten years, the long take has kind of gotten a resurgence. But you're talking about the uninterrupted shot right. kind of thing. The truth yeah. is Spielberg's been doing those as long as he's been making movies. He just does them in a way that it's not showy. Mm-hmm. He does it in a way that unfolds the story. And it's not just that he lets the camera roll. He moves the camera. Like it's if you there's a every frame of painting about the Spielberg Warner. And uh, it's true from the beginning. He's done a great job with innovative and complex filmmaking mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't draw attention to itself uh we also have not talked about and we don't need to talk too long about it but the contribution to our childhood comedy with tiny tune adventures and animaniacs <laughs> absolutely i i i don't know <clears throat> what i would think was funny if i didn't grow up with animaniacs with good idea bad idea every everything yeah yeah everything i mean it's almost like spielberg was our tutor he taught us how to watch film when uh-huh. we didn't know it. He taught us what to think was funny. And taught we didn't us know. comedy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would say undoubtedly best buds on this yes, one. Yes, agreed. Best buds. Undoubtedly Spielberg fanboys. Yes. And uh, you're going you're gonna to leave four stars, I take it? Yeah. I'll leave yeah. it there. I'll leave it four stars but as it's well. But it's a real familiar, loving four stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same here. All right. Well, that feels good. Yeah. And we did our sci-fi episode. 
I don't hope we did the genre, the is. entire genre de- yeah. justice. <laughs> done and done. <laughs> we never have to revisit that genre. Ever You're again. welcome, sci-fi. Let, let, let's talk about what we're going to discuss in our next episode of Can We Still Be Friends? So for uh, the next movie, on June 23rd, I believe, Sofia Coppola's next movie is being released called The Beguiled. And it's set during the Civil War. So a couple things... Sofia Coppola, a director we like, a writer and director we like. Period piece. Yep, a movie set, uh, you know, back in the day. We decided to do a movie that I've seen that Nate has not seen uh, and watched Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, which was her first sort of foray into real historical, although I guess Virgin Suicides was set in the 70s, so it was a step back in time. But it doesn't... Not quite... It's not quite a... Costume, you know... Costume drama, yeah. Right, so... Um, so this is... 2006? 2006. Um, so just a little over 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Kirsten Dunst, mm-hmm. Jason Schwartzman. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, I think, going for me for this movie. Like, yeah. I think I'm going to like it. Okay. And I don't know how I didn't see it, but I, I just didn't. Do, yeah. It's one of those that just fell through the cracks, and I'm really excited to watch it. Was it. Her, you know how yeah. much I love historical I do. I think movies. our listeners do, too. I uh, um, Yeah. And this is sort of a unique take mm-hmm. on that. There's some modernizing. It's not like crazy modernizing. It's not like a hip-hop musical. No, it's not like, like, yeah, it's not Hamilton, it's not uh, (laughs) Moulin Rouge. It's got it, but it's got a killer soundtrack too, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. so I mean, that's something I've always loved about Sofia Coppola If nothing else, you you should watch one of the original trailers that uses the song Whatever Happened by the Strokes. That just killed me. You were sold. I was ready for it, yeah. Yeah. Yep. It was also her follow-up to Lost in Translation, so a a lot of hype, anticipation for it. And, uh, I feel like it kind of came and went as far as movies go, but then I feel like it's gotten a lot of respect over the years. I feel, I, I, I'm feeling a lot of things here, but I feel yeah. like that's kind of I my, mean, I'm my sure take we'll on it. We'll talk about you know? it more uh, when we actually do the episode. But yeah, I think it's one of those movies that you could say maybe the same thing about Virgin Suicides too. But yeah, it, 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 since then, its visuals have gotten a lot of references. A lot of people refer to them. As uh, the art that they are, yeah. Mm-hmm. She just makes cool movies. She's, she just makes she very cool, <laughs> she's, very cool she's, movies. She's a real cool lady. <laughs> so I'm excited to watch one I haven't ever seen, but really yeah. feel like I should have this whole time. And, and I'm excited to see The Beguiled. Check out The Beguiled trailer, too, yeah. if you haven't seen that. And so you're a fan of Marie Antoinette, right? Yeah. And you saw well, it? Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about it. Okay, all right, good. And it's a little suspense. Good, I'm, yeah. I'm glad that we're leaving a little bit to the imagination for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen Did it since Ryan it was in theaters. like it? Did he not? I have not seen it since it was in theaters. Okay. 11 years. Now, you say Coppola, not Coppola? I say Coppola. Me too. Isn't it Francis Ford Coppola? Well, I've heard people say Coppola. Who says that? People who know him. I don't if know. If you say that, listener, call in. I need to hear that. We need to hear in a sentence. Francis or Sophia or Roman. <laughs> Honestly, anybody related to the family. Jason Schwartzman, Nick Cage. Go ahead, call in. Is, what's the name of their, their wine, his vine, winery? Coppola? So I don't know. This, is, this shouldn't be hard to figure no, no, out. No. I'm saying I could tell you, I could write it for you and spell it. It's spelled the same way. I've, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody say like, oh, you got to try the new, uh, you know. Coppola Pinot, wine. Pinot Noir from <laughs> the Francis Mer- Ford Coppola. <laughs> the delicious Merlot. <laughs> yeah. In Cabernet. Right. Of, Savage, co- of Coppola. Right. Savignon. Right. Blank. I, I feel like I've heard. <laughs> you really like saying that. Uh, yeah. Blank. Yeah. 
Anyways. Order that. I'm just, what I'm saying is I don't think it would be hard for us to find Francis Ford Coppola talking about his own winery and oh, pronouncing his winery. it for okay, okay. He probably won't sure. say, he probably wouldn't say his own name. Yeah. Or if there's like a commercial for their, their wine. They've got wine commercials, I right? The, I bet they're the best wine commercials. The yeah. best directed. Uh, they were back in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> right. Since then, they've become terrible. Unless Sophia did them, then, then they're really cool. Right. And have some awesome Or filters. Roman. Did you ever watch his movie CQ? No. Is it good? I like it. So, a couple things before the next episode. Watch Marie Antoinette. Watch the trailer for Marie Antoinette. With Watch the, the trailer song. for The Beguiled, right, with okay. the smile, the stroke Who's song. in The Beguiled, by the way? Uh, Nicole Kidman, right. Colin Farrell, All right. Elle Fanning, All right. Kirsten Dunst. All right. Mm-hmm. Good cast. Yeah. Oh, it really looks good, I, I think. Um, and then also watch CQ. What is CQ about? If you can, if you CQ. Can... It's the letters C and Q. Okay. I'm telling you, this is the truth. I'm no, not... I, I'm not. Uh, it's about a person uh, who is making a sci-fi movie back in like the 60s. It's like it's almost like the making of Barbarella. Jason Schwartzman's in it, and um, oh, what's his name? You'd recognize him. So yeah. Anyway, yeah, okay. uh, just I'll watch a it. general general. Jeremy Davies. Jeremy Davies. That's who I'm thinking of. Yeah, that's the guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. Gerard Depardieu. Yeah, and yeah. Billy's Billy Zane's in this movie. Oh yeah, Billy Zane is in that movie. All right. Well, now I'll definitely watch it. I can lend it to you if the library doesn't have it because it's it was like a definite under the radar came and went movie I, I'll find it okay <laughs> you underestimate my librarian skills that's true I will find it yeah you'll find it when I lend it to you I will find it <laughs> here's my promise to our listeners we will figure out whether it's Coppola or Coppola by the time of our next episode very least very least that's the that's the most we're promising. That's the most you can expect from us. That's the level of research that we do here. Right. Can we still be friends? Um, so if you want to know the answer to that, you'll have to tune in. Tune in next time, yeah. Subscribe on iTunes if you're afraid you're going to miss it. Yep. Um, Google Play, Stitcher. Yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. Player FM. Player FM, yeah. And if you're uh, over at iTunes, go ahead and leave us a rating. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're uh, there anyways. Yeah. If you want to reach out to us and maybe talk to us and maybe be best buds with us, find us on Twitter at CWSBF. Mm-hmm. Find us on Facebook. Email us, feedback at canwestillbefriends.net. Uh, visit our website, canwestillbefriends.net. Or you can call our, yeah. our voicemail. We've had people who have like listened to old episodes and given us just feedback on yeah, the archives. Us, yeah. And we love that. I love, I love hearing that stuff. So if you even are going through the back catalog and uh, want to give us a call and, and leave us your thoughts or a message, um, give us a voicemail, 847-306-9532. That's the, I'm going to call it a hotline. That's the hotline. Okay, sure. That's the hotline to the call center. <laughs> That's right. And we will put you right through yeah. to that voicemail inbo- that uh, will, inbox. Yep. And it will get to us via the call center hotline. Mm-hmm. So. Our operators are on standby. Yep. Whether so. you call or not, thank you for listening. We appreciate all our listeners. Whether you're doing, whether you're in the gym or driving, doesn't matter. We mm-hmm. just appreciate the fact that you're listening. And Even uh, if you listen to us to fall asleep, that's fine. That, we don't have a problem with that. Honestly, we just care about the numbers. That's right. And if that half those numbers are sleeping numbers, they're still numbers. That's true. So thank you. 
that, and and those numbers are why we sleep at night. Yeah. So and it's a real often this kind of rambling is mm-hmm. a method. You know, you might not think there's a lot of method to this madness, but the we method understand. is yep. that you're probably trying to get to sleep right now, and, and we get it. So, so good night. Yeah. Hey guys, Dan Wardsbaugh. Uh, I have been digging through the backlog and I'm almost done, but I just got to Barton Fink. Um, I have had never watched it, so I watched it and then I listened to your episode. And here's a different take it's a wrestling movie. John Goodman is the wrestler, he's the one saving the idiot man child, which is John Turturro. And they do the orphan and dame thing that um, didn't work according to the guy, uh, which also doesn't work. The dame dies. And yeah, it's just kind of the formula they spell out in the movie, they play out in their movie. There are lots of other things I thought about that. I loved your episode, and I loved that movie. Um, So thank you for the recommendation of a movie that is now a movie I really enjoy. All right. Talk to you guys later.